You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with Rob Nahoopi and Jennifer Hagen from the Spendman Pharmacy team. Hey, guys. Hey, Greg. How's it going? Going well. Welcome, Jennifer. First time on the podcast. Yeah. Good afternoon. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, insights from the recent uh, 340B Coalition Conference, the National Harbor in Washington, D.C., we're about two weeks out from the conference. As soon as everybody got back from D.C., we had to run off and audit and do site visits. Some of us went on vacation, so we're just kind of catching up and going to walk through some of the big takeaways from sessions and booth conversations that we had with folks at Coalition Conference. Hey, Greg, that that sounds great. Uh, I just, you know, just, just to start off, if I can, um, just throw in there. I actually really, I don't know, um, Jennifer, you and Greg, but I really enjoyed this conference. It felt like our first conference truly back from COVID. I know we were at the winter one and, and I thought, you know, it was good, but lots of masking, uh, lots of our um, health systems couldn't attend. They were still under COVID protocol to not travel. And uh, in fact, I, I got COVID from that conference, just to put that out there, um, the winter coalition. And so it felt like the summer coalition, you know, masks were off, people were meeting and it just felt a lot more engaging and, and really enjoyed the conference. So first of all, I just want to thank everyone who came by, said hello, came to our client appreciation event at the Brass Tap. It really was a lot of fun just just reconnecting with everyone at the conference. And and I thought the content was was uh, very good as well. I thought we uh, heard quite a bit of good information and you know and I think our plan today is to share some of that, just just highlight some of the the talks, especially the ones that we attended and and, and colleagues and and some of our clients speaking. Really really enjoyed some of that. Yeah, I agree, Rob. I, I think this is the first conference that I've been in, you know, into for a while now where it actually felt like things were were back to normal for the most part. So nice to see a lot of friendly faces that we've been working with remotely over the last couple of years. This was actually my first time meeting a few of the teammates that we have on the SpendMed pharmacy team. So uh, all in all, really good, good trip. Um, and, and one last thing I'll say is, you know, some of us were a little concerned about the venue. Um, being at the National Harbor versus just in Northwest DC, we're kind of in the heart of it, and it's kind of busy, not a lot of things around, but it's kind of cool to be in that area. Really enjoyed the venue; it was still more open for those that like the the, the evening kind of mingling scene. There's lots of space there, um, lots of things nearby, walking distance. It's really made for a conference type area, and so um, you know, definitely if, if they continue to hold it there in the future, which is what we kind of heard. Um, I believe, and uh, for at least the next year or two, uh, it's a great place. So it's definitely considered next year if, if you're yeah. on the fence for coming to D.C. this year. Yeah, great point. It was great, great venue, great location. Looking forward to, to getting back there next year. All right, well, let's start from the top. So we've got some of the sessions that we felt were were really pertinent to discuss. Some of the sessions really probably warrant a more in-depth discussion. And we'll talk a little bit about at the end what our plan is for bringing you some some content related to some of the sessions around maybe drug pricing reform or 340B ESP. Um, but for um, for now, let's let's start at the top with opening remarks. Um, we had an opportunity to hear uh, comments from Dr. Egwim, his first opportunity to address the coalition members as the director of OPA. Also, new individual at HRSA, Carol Johnson, HRSA administrator, um, shared a little bit of insight around the plans for improving oversight of the 340B program. And I think the focus of her comments really were that HRSA needs more data and more information to adequately and sustainably um, provide oversight of the 340B program. I know when she talked a little bit about you know, the fact that they need more data and they need more information. I'm thinking about what that means for covered entities in terms of changes to potentially the HRSA data request list. Are they going to begin asking covered entities to provide impact statements to demonstrate how they're using 340B savings? 
are they going to ask covered entities to provide 340B savings metrics so they can begin to aggregate data around the volume of 340B sales and value of the 340B program to covered entities? I think there's some unknown impact right now for covered entities. Jennifer, you mentioned that you know some of her comments really might tie into recent manufacturer restrictions. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, uh, Greg, I agree. And we'll be watching here in September when the new data request list comes out just to see if there are any changes, as you mentioned. And, and what I heard her say as well is they are, in regard to enforcement, just watching what's going on in the contract pharmacy side. And they're sending letters and then just defending their actions. And they, you know, Carol mentioned, they want this program to be a solution for patients to get medications and the services that they need. So um, again, with all of this, HRSA needs more data to be able to make all of this happen, but ultimately they want this program to be sustainable um, and to meet the program intent. So let's see what more uh, is gonna come from this in the future. Yeah, yeah, great point. You know, another thing that wasn't addressed during the opening remarks, but I know there was a little bit of buzz in the hallways, you know, just before coalition, uh, the Biden administration repealed uh, an executive order that the White House uh, executed back in 2019. So Trump, uh, the Trump administration um, had an executive order um, issued in 2019 that limited HRSA's and other federal agencies' ability to enforce guidance. And a lot of folks have been asking, what does that mean in terms of person for enforcement. And although uh, Dr. Eggwam and Carol Johnson didn't really talk about the impact of the repeal of that order, you know, I, I still think it's probably too soon to tell what that means for covered entities in terms of how that's going to impact Hearst's approach to auditing. Rob, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, this one's tough because, um, you know, if we think back to 2019, there were there were two factors, right? And and we always learn in fire there's multifactorial. Sometimes you, it's hard to really identify wh what which one was the main cause. So during that time, we had two things. One, we had the um, Trump administration saying, "Do not enforce guidance." In fact, I also think they said, "Don't create guidance." The second thing that was occurring, and we didn't know it at the time, what we learned later was the Genesis law case, which challenged Hearst's authority to enforce guidance. And so we had these two things related to guidance, and we saw, and what we we saw, or what we experienced in late twenty mid twenty nineteen to today, is HRSA, you know, maybe taking and not enforcing uh, certain things that are in guidance uh, during HRSA audits, which was different to pre twenty nineteen. So, so again, we don't know which one caused it. And so, our, our I guess our thought process here, as we talked about this, is so what do we do with this? Just because the um, current administration repealed. This this order um, to limit enforcement of guidance doesn't necessarily mean Hearst is going to all of a sudden go, go revert back to pre 2019. So so my thought is kind of a, let's wait and see, right? One thing I can promise is that you know we at Spendman Pharmacy, previously Turnkey Pharmacy Solutions, we do you know over 400 audits a year. We're all, we're constantly doing audits, and we we do quite a few Hearst audits as well. So. Um, so although there's less first audits in this kind of tail end of the fiscal year, this Q3, we're definitely probably going to see some picking up in, in um, HRSA's uh, Q1, which is the fourth quarter. And when we see those, we'll definitely alert everyone if we're starting to see kind of a tightening of patient definition, or is it kind of the status quo and the way it's been? I've got a feeling it's going to be the way it's been because of the Genesis law case and things related to that and HRSA not being able to enforce guidance or um, FAQs already. Um, I almost think it's probably not going to make a huge change, but definitely it's a wait and see. And, and we'll, again, we'll be reporting back through our podcast and our newsletter or webinar, whichever makes the most sense um, as we start gleaning some of the information from HRSA audits that we start attending here at the beginning of uh, HRSA's next fiscal year. Yeah, great. Good. You know, another uh, high, kind of high, high profile, high visibility session, always the keynote um, session, keynote speech uh, this year featured former Surgeon General Jerome Adams and spent a lot of time focusing on health inequity, particularly in underserved communities. And those communities we know commonly intersect with 340B covered entity patient populations. And he also shared comments around the need for covered entities to demonstrate how the value of the 340B program drives 
improved health outcomes in these communities. It's not just a program that helps to pad the financials of those participating in the program. It's really a program that gets you know, these life-saving critical medications into the hands of patients who truly need them. And if covered entities can begin to demonstrate improved out outcomes in their communities as a result of being able to participate in the 340B program, that should turn down some of the heat and mitigate some of the opposition that we see to the 340B program out there. There was another session um, separate from the keynote speech that talked about presenting improved outcomes and presenting research related to the 340B program. Rob, you've got a, a close connection with Chuck Stubbs and a uh, gentleman that, that presented some, some research-based information at the conference. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed this. Chuck, Chuck and I go way back. We worked together at Intermountain Healthcare when I was a pharmacy director, and he actually ran our in-house retail pharmacy, and, and we had started some um, 340B voucher programs back then to basically, if, if patients had an inability to pay for their copay or for their insulin, we would just do it for $5, or if they couldn't, if they couldn't afford $5, we would do it at no cost. And we did that back, gosh, this was when I was there, so over 10 years ago. And um, But over the last couple of years, they actually got a grant and formally made it um, a, a research project where they were going to study and do statistical analysis and get IRB approval and it would truly make sure that the results we saw were, were um, to be duplicated. And so they're still in the middle of it. And it was fun because what uh, Chuck shared, and if you have a chance to, to review his slides, is is that they thought it would be a lot more simple. Um, and when you actually do a, a full-blown study, it takes quite a bit of work. And, and he pointed out that you definitely need to include the right team um, and and that through the process, you, you need to be patient and you need to look at all your variables. And, and he pointed out, he said, we made some mistakes. We should have included some variables up front. We didn't. So when they got to their initial cut of results, they were told, hey, you've got to go back and collect this piece of information to truly identify the results you're trying to see. So he just said, just going through that methodology, doing all those things critical now there, it, it seemed like some of their preliminary data looked really strong. Like, I think it's, it's going to end up being a positive and it's going to confirm the results we had where we showed a statistical decrease in hemoglobin A1C for the patient population undergoing um, a charity care program for diabetes uh, to help support their medication costs. Um, so I think that's positive. The, the other person who presented actually was really awesome as well is Jangus. Uh, um, from, let me see, I'm trying to remember, Jengis, uh, Whitner from um, Primary One Health, and they did a qualitative study really interviewing patients kind of post-entrance um, into a very similar type program where they're getting support for their diabetes medications. Um, a different type of, type of study with a small end, but really the results are very similar in that there's very positive outcomes from um, using 340B to leverage um, pricing, especially in a, in a disease state like diabetes, to make sure patients can afford their meds. Because when they don't, they skip doses or they ration their insulin, which are things we saw. So just knowing that people are out there doing that and they're sharing so the other covered entities can do it well, I think is fantastic. I think it's in line with the keynote speech from the Surgeon General that we really yeah. do not only need to make sure we're focused on keeping the hospitals and clinics open, keeping them staffed, um, but also making sure we're able to leverage 340B to provide that benefit to the front line. So really strong message from this group, from the, um, the keynote. And, and I really, really love it and believe that as well. Yeah, it's great. Great to see those 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 comments from Surgeon General Adams kind of uh, kind of uh, executed in practice um, uh, through those couple of discussions around research. And, you know, for me, having worked with residents in the past, just, you know, I think it's a great reminder out there to those of you that are listening and you're involved in residency programs at your institutions, you know, don't overlook the value of uh, assessing 340B impact at your hospitals when you're trying to mentor residents through research publications. I think it's a, a great, really untapped market right now for, for research. So, Greg, if I can throw a little bit more in there, uh, and Jennifer, sorry, please jump in, but I, I used residents two years in a row for my 340B project. So if you're at a resident program where you can do, we, we did resident pitches. So we'd pitch ideas and the residents get to select which idea they wanted to for their, yeah. their project that year. And I got two years in a row and that's how we did it. First year was creating the 340B voucher program. The second year I had a second resident take it and we did the clinical measurement of the hemoglobin A1Cs for patients in the program. And they were their own comparator pre and post to see if we showed a statistical decrease and hemoglobin A1C, and they loved it. They loved these projects, great posters. I think they ended well. So definitely if you're at one of these health systems or hospitals or clinics that has residents, 
don't be afraid to think about great ideas you have where you just need a little bit of um, a kind of resource time, some FTEs, and the residents have the time to do this. This is their project that can really help be the primary driver of your projects and, and end up with positive patient outcomes and goals. So I agree, don't don't hesitate to use students and residents as much as you can for 340B since in many cases we, we don't have the resources we need and we see that all the time. And, the, and those new practitioners, they don't get any exposure to 340B often in, in pharmacy school. So that's an, you know, an uneducated area of the pharmacy industry. So what a great way for residents and, and even students to get some exposure to 340B program operations. I, I got to ask, um, Jennifer or uh, Greg, did any of you ever hear of 340B in pharmacy school? <laughs> no, not when I was in pharmacy school. No, not for the first Same five years of, of being a licensed pharmacist did I ever hear of it. So. I, I didn't hear about it until I learned about it as a resident going through an administrative rotation going, oh, we didn't learn about this. So just wanted to ask because, I mean, mm. that's what's key about the program, right? We we go through all this pharmacy training, whether you're a technician or a pharmacist or come into pharmacy from a business side, and and we, we are all learning on the job. So uh, so I, that's where I think I think taking the time to create some projects and, and getting students and residents involved in 340B is so critical since we're not actually teaching that. Well, at least maybe we are today, but we don't teach that significantly in pharmacy school. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's keep going. Wanted to touch upon a couple of operational and compliance sessions. There were two uh, sessions that focused on HRSA enforcement. Um, One of them was tied to patient definition. And if you listen to episode one, we had a great roundtable discussion with a couple of colleagues around areas where the patient definition may be expanding um, in, in terms of uh, covered entities trying to maximize their participation in the program. This particular session, Jennifer and I were sitting arm in arm. So we're sitting next to each other, texting back and forth. And Dr. Eggwin from OPA was sitting you know, a couple of seats over. So I kept glancing over to see if he had any uh, reactions to any of the information was um, that was being presented. I didn't see anything, not not uh, not to say that he wasn't enjoying the presentation, but pretty, um, pretty strict poker face. Jennifer, I don't know if you noticed anything <laughs> from where you were sitting. <laughs> Watching as well, but no. Yeah, but I, I was nice to see him there and that, you know, it's using the coalition as an opportunity to hear what covered entities are talking about. The, the patient definition session focused on two covered entities who shared recent HRSA audit experiences and audits that resulted in them uh, having to address diversion findings. So uh, quickly, and again, if, if you attended the, the coalition, you, you can go back and look at the slide decks that were provided by the um, the, the folks that presented these, these topics. But um, there was a one FQHC out of Mississippi who talked a little bit about um, referral claim capture. And in their HRSA audit, they had two referral claim samples that failed because of insufficient documentation of a provider to patient relationship, particularly due to uh, a lack of summary notes tied to the prescriptions in question for the referral providers. Jennifer's going to share a little bit on this when she talks about her um, her ACE luncheon uh, presentation. So we'll, we'll come back to this in a little bit. Another covered entity that presented their audit experience it's a health system out of Wisconsin. Um, they had three audits in 2021, so so not the best luck in terms of drawing HRSA audits, uh, particularly during a, a COVID year. Um, but one of their covered entities was their sole community hospital had two diversion findings. One related to a hospital 340B drug that was dispensed to um, a patient who was in an inpatient setting. Um, and another uh, diversion finding attributed to a contract pharmacy claim that was dispensed without documentation in the uh, in the medical record. Um, yeah, I think this the hospital's findings were more likely attributed to them being having some difficulty in producing documentation to help validate 340B eligibility determinations. Um, but what was, I think, notable to me during that particular session was that neither of the covered entities challenged the audit findings. And Stephen Miller from 340B Health led off the presentation and really did a great job of summarizing how we've seen significant trend in terms of decreasing frequency of diversion findings since 2019 when HRSA scaled back auditing standards 
to focus only on uh, elements that are outlined explicitly in the statute. So the covered entities kind of shared experiences that were contrary to what we have seen at Spendvend, and we've heard other covered entities um, experience. And I think it underscores the importance of, of really analyzing your audit findings closely and hold a lower threshold for challenging findings, particularly with issues related to guidance. I know that we've supported a lot of covered entities who've had diversion findings in audit reports that we've been able to successfully um, negotiate with HRSA to remove or downgrade to an AFI. So yeah, that's that was my takeaway from that particular session was, you know, don't don't forget about the opportunity to dispute findings that you feel are unfair or inaccurate when you get a HRSA audit. Jennifer, anything you wanted to add to that? You know, maybe I just want to put you on the spot for just a second, because I think <laughs> there was a fantastic question asked at that session, to which there may not actually be an answer, but would you remember how yeah. that question went, Greg? Yeah, I don't, I don't know who that guy was that asked that question, but yeah. no, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, I, it was a great, it, it was a really interesting um, presentation, and and my question w was really around the process for disputing uh, audit findings, and you know, HRSA gives clear instruction in the audit reports around the timeline for challenging audit findings or accepting audit findings and um, completing a corrective action plan. So you've got 30 days from the time where you received the, port, the report to dispute findings or 60 days to complete a cap. And I've gone through this process with other covered entities where we've initially disputed a finding and then HRSA has come back and they've disagreed with our dispute and they've issued the audit report with the findings that we were challenging initially um, and essentially eliminating the opportunity to challenge those findings or work with HRSA to remove those findings from an audit report. So my question was, what do you do when you get to that point? You've you disputed the findings, HRSA disagrees with you. And the the two covered entities that presented, they, they didn't have any experience kind of going through the challenge process. And Steve Miller from 340B Health also really didn't have any experience to share and suggested maybe that's a point in time where you you lawyer up and you'll have to move forward with some type of, of uh, legal response. So um, again, kind of an open-ended question right now for, for me and for our team is, you know, how you escalate the uh, the challenge of HRSA audit findings that you you clearly disagree with. Yep. Yep. I thought it was a fair question, Greg. And right now I do believe that that is the only recourse. So yeah. um, maybe in the future, that is something that yeah. we can work in and push toward a little bit of a different resolution. But yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, definitely easier for larger uh, mm -hmm. health systems or larger covered entities that have the resources, but those small covered entities that, that maybe lack the, the bandwidth or the expertise in-house to, to mount a, a litigation against HRSA, I, I could see that being a, a real challenge. So, all right, another enforcement session is around duplicate discount. So Amanda Negrotsky from 340B Health moderated a, a really thorough discussion around duplicate discount requirements. Um, also sharing some uh, thoughts and trends around HRSA audit data, uh, pointing towards fewer uh, duplicate discount findings that we've seen since uh, around 2019. She kind of postulated that that was, you know, we've seen fewer duplicate discount findings because of recent clarification on uh, OPACE, um, as well as the fact that some audit findings that we were seeing prior to 2018, 2019 are no longer in the scope of HRSA audit. So specifically state-specific billing requirements like the use of UD modifiers and AAC as, or actual acquisition costs as a drug ingredient cost. So those elements are state-specific requirements and fall outside of the purview of, of HRSA's um, audit scope. So when you, you know, when HRSA sees failure to use a UD modifier or they see you using an incorrect drug ingredient cost, they may note those in the audit reports as areas for improvement, but covered entities aren't experiencing um, true duplicate discount findings uh, associated with failure to maintain compliance with state-specific requirements. This is another session where I had a question. We asked a question about a recent HRSA clarification around carve-out. So this doesn't apply to covered entities who are, are carving in, but we do have a fair number of covered entities that we work with that um, carve out 
Medicaid from their 340B program. And, um, you know, the question was, what, what does HRSA intend when they have a covered entity designate themselves as carve out on the OPA database? And, and when you say no, or you say that you carve out on OPAs, really through this clarification, HRSA is saying, you know, we, we don't bill Medicaid for 340B drugs, and we also don't dispense 340B drugs to Medicaid patients, which I think is a little bit different than maybe we have interpreted this carve-out designation in the past. And I know some of our clients that we've worked with have also um, interpreted it. So, you know, carve-out covered entities. So hospitals and clinics that are designating themselves as carve-out and bill at an all-inclusive rate or maybe adjust drugs off of the pre-bill, but are still dispensing 340B drugs to Medicaid patients, they're really at risk right now for uh, Medicaid exclusion file findings. Um, and you know, I think the thought might be that if you are dispensing 340B drugs to Medicaid patients, regardless of your billing practice, you, you may need to change your carve-in, carve-out designation to indicate that you're carving in. Rob, any thoughts around that? Oh, I agree with that as well. And, um, you know, and this one is tricky um, because especially this part, this is updated information um, because we, I, you know, we work with quite a few um, covered entity types that um, that don't bill Medicaid because they're in a PNPM kind of a capitated rate or a medical home rate, um, especially we especially see this with FQHCs. And so it wasn't uncommon for us to see them not carving in because they said, well, we don't actually ever bill Medicaid. And so there's no risk for duplicate discount. And, and this rule does kind of change it. The other critical piece, I think, um, is that, you know, this all pertains to fee-for-service and, you know, how does this work for managed care? Um, and so, so it, although it feels like the safe play now, um, if you just think about it, is look, if you're buying 340B drugs and administering it or dispensing it to a Medicaid patient, then the safe play is to carve in, add your NPI. Right. I mean, and if you're not billing for it, you don't have to worry about modifiers or AAC and anything like that. But but I will say there, you know, we talked to some clients that say, oh, yeah, we, we don't bill for drugs. And then we kind of get into it and they're like, oh, yeah, there's an exception. Right. LARPs, yeah. uh, uh, long acting reversible contraceptives like IUDs. Oh, we're allowed to bill those separately on top of our per member per month rate or capitated rate. We're like, OK, how are you billing those? And we find, OK, maybe those aren't aren't um, <clears throat> correctly or maybe you're not carving in and you're billing. You didn't know it. So just from, is it 100% in that case? And even if it is, Hearst has kind of come on. So, you know, just everybody on notice. If you're going to buy it on 340B, just carve in, put your MPI on there, do what you have to do. And, and I think that's the safe play at this point um, yeah. regarding duplicate discount. Jennifer, any thoughts on your end? No, I think that covers it. Um, yeah. <laughs> nothing more to add. Yeah, I will say, you know, I, I would like to see OPA change the the phrasing of the question then, because I do think it's confusing. That question on OPACE really only pertains specifically to billing. So I think they're perhaps um, misleading covered entities as they're asking specifically about billing practices. So hopefully we'll see uh, a change in, in how that appears on the OPA database. All right. Um, let's talk about other sessions. Let's and maybe we'll do some shout-outs. Rob, any any uh, any shout-outs to to clients that we've worked with who um, participated and and presented interesting information? Yeah, yeah. And and just so everyone knows, we we try and divide and conquer. That's what you might hear some of us not chime in as much on some of these presentations. Some, sometimes they're simultaneous, and so as our for our team, we say, okay, who's going to what, and we we all break out. One I attended was kind of a a special interest session really around ch challenges with IT. It just so happens that all three people who spoke, we actually know all three of them, two are current clients. One is kind of a current client. Um, we'll get into the details on that one. There's a merger occurring, um, but they all three are fantastic. So I'll uh, and it, um, start with Jody Becker from Advent Health out of Florida, worked with Jody for many years, fantastic 340B director, um, covers uh, multiple states, deals with a lot from the IT side. And she just shared, kind of in her presentation, you know, what it's like. Um, and the whole presentation, everyone's doing their best not to say any names, but, you know, so it was uh, one of the large um, EHRs that um, um, is, I forgot what word they use, but, but it was it was a very um, extra um, type of EHR system, um, extra, extra excellent or whatever you want to call it. So um, <laughs> you can guess which one that is, but all three of them happen to, to be implementing this EHR and kind of some of the things they ran into along the, in, in that process or just other challenges with IT. 
Jody talked about with her health system, you know, starting off small, m- making sure you have a solid team, making sure that you plan for it. And just to save time, because we don't, I don't, because I could spend all day talking about what they talked about. But at the end, she said, you've got to test, test, test. When you think you're done testing, test some more. Um, and even to the point where sometimes you can do it in your test database, but some things you cannot test till it's in production. So when, when you, when you start, maybe start with one site, one small site, small site you have, do it and then test, test before, test after, test in production and make sure everything's going okay. And especially double check all your accumulation because things can go, go, uh, you know, slide sideways pretty quick. So really good job by Jody. Uh, Roy from UNC Chapel Hill um, or UNC as a whole. Roy has been running their program for a while. A fantastic love Roya. She did a great job talking about contract pharmacies. Uh, fact that you know right now you have single tpa setups which are okay they're good right pretty it's more straightforward and you've got these situations where there's a multiple tpa setup so you've got a tpa um that might be doing the inventory and purchasing side for the contract pharmacy and then maybe the covered entities tpa is doing qualification and how do these things sync up and and she just made a really good point as they assess these situations where there's more than one tpa involved in a single contract pharmacy of being able to track everything, making sure all those data feeds are flowing, both TPAs are getting information they need, EDI feeds that they're linking up. Because sometimes you see this delay where, where you know, one says you accumulate this much, the other one says this much, and they're just not the same. So how do you track that? She did a really good job covering that. Um, and her thing was monitor, monitor, monitor. So similar to Jody, where test, 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 monitor, 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 probably the same thing. Um, make sure you're doing that and you have the resources to do that. Um, but we definitely want to give a kudos, shout out to both of those. And the third presenter, Bob Owens from Adrium. He did a fantastic job. He too went through EHR, the extra special EHR. Um, they, one thing he talked about, which actually he close to home, and I want to slow down and share a little bit, and it was around NDC accumulation. A lot of times, and a lot of our clients that I've gone on site, I've recommended, hey, you're doing charge on dispense. Going to charge administration will be more accurate. Once they go to charge administration, we say, that's great. You're doing a CDM accumulation. Um, if you get to NDC accumulation, if you're scanning the NDC, why not send it? And he brought up a valid argument that he said, all that that's generally true, right? Especially for single source items. It's less true when you have inner outer packages, um, when you're not scanning an NDC. Um, and, and here's the one that he shared that's, that's that kind of was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. What about when you have a single NDC that's mapped to multiple CDMs such that the pack sizes for billing are different? Yeah. So let me say that again. So, so you got two different CDMs, maybe pediatrics and adult, same NDC, but because of the way you're billing, the billing quantities, your, your, your multiplier has to be different. Well, yep. if you're sending over the NDC, there's no way to get that accurate because you, you, you need multiple, you'd have to know which version you're using, which CDM, you know what multiplier to use and no quantities coming across so that was a big one and i wanted to share that because that could impact many people that's implementing or moving towards accumulating the actual ndc scan so you so things you have to work through in that um in their case just to give you the solution they decided then there's some cases instead of sending the ndc they do have to send the cdm and then they have to make sure the mapping of those cdms to the ndc they're actually using is up to date right now you're going back to the old issue of why we want to go to scan uh, uh the NDC scan. But I thought that was valid. Wanted to share that. Um, really good education. Bob did a fantastic job. Roya, uh, Jody, all fantastic. Love this presentation. Really sharing the nuts and bolts of what it feels like to have to integrate and deal with data within the 340B program and complex covered entities and health systems. So great job to those three. And hopefully they're listening. Um, thank you. And uh, Joy, looking forward to working with all three of you the rest of this year and next year. Excellent. Great. Well, now I think we got to plug, you know, some of the sessions that uh, were supported by by our own staff. So, Jennifer, I'm going to put you on the spot here yourself. Um, your your uh, presentation during the ACE uh, luncheon, where you talked a little bit about contract pharmacy operations in light of the the manufacturer pricing restrictions. All right. Yes. So we had a fantastic opportunity to speak at a couple of sessions, and for the first session an opportunity to work with uh, Apexis. And then in particular, it was a room full of those who have completed their ACE certification. And so the idea being that we could have a conversation that is a little bit of a deeper dive into some potentially hot topics. 
And so for these hot topics, we talked about um, considerations with uh, your contract pharmacy operation in light of manufacturer pricing restrictions. And then, so some of the first things we, we talked about were what you should review prior to making a decision about submitting data. You know, I'm not gonna go into a lot of that because I think many people are very familiar with, with what you should consider. We then would go a little bit further in discussion um, about once you've decided to submit that data, what have you seen or experienced, you know, what has the experience been with regard to medication access? And I think just in regard to that, I know a lot of you have experienced this. The number one thing is that you're not going to get 100% of your savings back. Not all manufacturers are providing pricing and not all are using a clearinghouse and that your savings are not going to be instantaneous, that it's taking three or four months to get savings. Uh, the other thing is that diligence is required. So there's a lot of staffing resources needed to get these savings. And um, aside from that, there's many things. We've had some webinars from Spendman that discusses this. And I think we will continue to have some additional webinars that will give you some additional information about what you need to know. And so one of the some of the things though that we got into some detail, which maybe there wasn't a lot of information provided, would be so for those who haven't decided to submit data, what are some things that those covered entities could do? And a lot of folks would know that you'd need to maximize your exceptions. And that would be if you don't have in-house pharmacy, that you need to select one of your contract pharmacies to do so based off of volume or the specific types of prescriptions that are being filled at that pharmacy. But the other options would be to begin a referral capture program. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about what considerations would be made around referral capture. Another thing would be to review your patient definition. And if you wanted to know more about those considerations, SpendMend had recently sent out a white paper for considerations around that that you could reference. And then another thing that we talked about was considerations around an alternate ship to arrangement. And so I'll give you just a few more thoughts on that. And then something everybody should do would be to advocate. So submit overcharge reports or let HRSA know about the impact of pricing restrictions and the risks associated with the data submission. Yeah, that, that last part really ties back to, I think, what Carol Johnson was talking about in her opening remarks about needing needing more data. So I think yes. that was important for you to, to highlight that. What, what about the alternate ship two locations? I follow the 340B Health email exchange. You know, I, I was away at the beach last week, but I couldn't help but look at it every couple of days. Lots of chatter on the, on the listserv there about this alternate ship two location. I'm guessing a lot of that was catalyzed by your presentation. Tell us a little bit about the considerations for the, the alternate ship two piece. So for the alternate ship two, I think um, I have heard, you know, the, the question is how many people are actually doing this in practice? Yeah. Uh, you know, so I've heard of a few and the considerations you need to find out what are your state's regulations with regard to distribution, work with your board of pharmacy. And perhaps if there's a small enough operation, then there wouldn't be any licensing necessary uh, you, you know, if you do need to get licensing, then there are DSCSA considerations. And then just um, ultimately, you need to work with the contract pharmacy to determine how this operation would be set up so that you can have auditable records around the replenishment or around those items that you're capturing as eligible. So just a few things to consider with alternate, yeah. alternate ship two arrangements. How about referrals? We know one covered entity shared some compliance risk around referrals, but it's a hot topic and it's been a strategy that a lot of folks have been interested in. I know we've been working with a lot of clients around referral capture. Any any best practices that you can share around referral capture? 
You know, there's always the the best practice, which is still touted as as the closed loop, where you would have a visit, which for grantees would be within you know the, the previous 24 months, for hospitals within the last 12 to 18 months, medication on the med list, a diagnosis on the problem list that you can show the documented referral, and that you would have the uh, provider note back into the health record. Great. And, and you know, outside of, of just that closed loop though, Greg, I think there's uh, a lot of other things going on that, that we could talk about. Um, and I don't even, I mean, Rob, do you, are you seeing some things? Or, I mean, I, I know there's a few things that we talked about during that session but um, even through our referral capture program, I, I know there's some some different ways that that we are working through the referral process. You're right. I mean, you know, we 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 like to kind of just present the current state to to our clients that we're doing referral capture with, and you know, and we have kind of our gold standard compliant. And there's there's different you know levels depending on you know how you, you know where you are with the free freebie patient definition and how you're set up i actually think a lot of it is you know how is your primary care set up how are, how are you referring and who are you referring to and uh those things so we definitely are looking at various options for um, covered entities and we just like again present the data present what we're seeing in in the hearse audit space and with other clients and, and letting the covered entities pick for themselves what what they're most comfortable with um, but what we are seeing from some of the vendors um, potentially where they're definitely not doing referral capture. And that's one thing I like to share with people. I said, there's referral capture, which is sort of specific to having a formal referral, typically from primary care or something similar to primary care, and then going out to a specialist and that, that primary care is responsible. We, we see that as you know low risk um, and something that's been around for a long, long time as part of patient definition. But Anything else where you don't have that formal referral in place, what you're really talking about is a continuum of care argument. Um, that's the loosening of the 340 patient definition. A lot of people kind of lump that into referral. And I always like to keep it separate because I think the level of risk is higher with a continuum of care argument. So I'm not saying that you can't do it, just, just realize what it is and, and determine for your covered entity if you're comfortable with it. So that's kind of what I'm saying this face is just, just educating people on the difference between those two. And, and that one could change or be, you know, definitely be um, enforced as non-compliant down the road, where the other one likely will be okay unless there's a huge shift away from the, the previous 340B patient definition. So, but it's, it is an interesting space to be in right now that as, as uh, covered entities look for where, where are their savings, you know, especially to help um, uh, deal with some of the offset of losses they're seeing from the manufacturers and contract pharmacy right now. Excellent. And, and Jennifer, you pitched a doubleheader at the uh, at the conference. Not only did you uh, provide a really in-depth discussion for the ACE luncheon, you also um, participated in lessons uh, from the field. So, so tell everybody a little bit about um, the, uh, the, the lesson from the field topic on changing entity types. Right. So the lessons from the field was geared more towards hospitals in changing hospital types. So we have previously included this information in our newsletter in a blog. And so that is something I don't necessarily need to get into a lot of information <laughs> during this podcast, but I certainly can lead people into a resource, uh, provide a resource. If, if anybody is interested, just reach out and let us know. We yeah. have a lot of information that we could provide on, on things you should know about if you need to change entity type. Well, it's it, it's always fantastic seeing colleagues uh, that you've worked with present at the coalition. So Jennifer, I know we were all just super proud to see your name up there, and you know, gotten so much good feedback from from all the expertise that you shared during the the coalition. So thanks for representing us so well. Thanks, Greg. And and I will say, um, and I appreciate that as well because it takes a lot of energy to present. So hats off to all the presenters at the conference. Uh, I know exhausting it can be just emotionally preparing for it, you know, mentally preparing for it and then doing it. And, and especially if you're speaking more than once to do it again. So yeah, really, really a strong work. Thank you. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, presenting actually sometimes serves as a, as a distraction because you're really there to learn. You're there to network, and you know, it's uh, it, having to carry a couple of presentations in in a couple of days really serves as a distraction. So, uh, really value the the folks that are going there and and um, you know, putting so much effort in. Particularly you, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of other information to unpack from coalition. I think we're coming up on time here. Um, a few topics that that came up that we're not going to get into today, but I'll uh, kind of give you all teasers for for upcoming podcast episodes. Um, we're putting together an update from Washington D.C. So uh, the coalition conference usually includes a, a Washington D.C. update. This year they included a, a presentation from Michael McCon, who's a drug pricing policy expert, who shared insights on the inflation. Reduction Act, which just recently passed through both chambers of Congress, as well as some other pending um, uh, uh, laws and bills that are there and proposals that are out there in, in Washington that may intersect with the 340B program. We'll be bringing to you guys an in-depth kind of uh, discussion or conversation from the Spendman Pharmacy team on what we think the Inflation Reduction Act is going to mean for 340B covered entities as that becomes uh, signed into law soon. Um, we plan on coming back and talking a little bit more around 340B ESP and the use of covered entity data. Lots of discussions and debate at the coalition around the ongoing risks and benefits of uploading claims data um, to retain 340B pricing, as Jennifer mentioned in, in her session. And also really try to kind of outline what we think are the um, you know the next steps or where the future is headed in terms of the contract pharmacy manufacturer restrictions, where we think this is going, and what are the pathways to potential resolution. So those are all topics that you can expect us to bring to you through the podcast in the next couple of weeks to months. And um, we're also going to close out this month's episode with some sound bites that we gathered from SpendMen staff members and clients who we got a chance to connect with at the coalition. So you'll get to hear from a, a few of our friends in a few minutes. Jennifer, Rob, thanks for taking time today to share your, your thoughts and experience from the co coalition. Greg and, and I'll, Greg, I'll say um, for Jennifer, it's great having you on. I think we have to have you on more often to uh, kind of throw some of these topics around and kind of go back and forth. So thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right. Again, thanks everyone for listening and we'll catch you next time. Take care. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by SpendMen Pharmacy. As a pharmacy industry professional, you know 340B program participation includes complex regulatory and audit requirements that must be managed carefully and accurately. If HRSA identifies non-compliance issues, costly and corrective actions are often required, and 340B programming eligibility may be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how Spendman Pharmacy can help you ensure 340B compliance while driving significant savings. Hey everyone, I'm here with Ellie Kleinsmith, one of the lead pharmacist auditors from our company SpendMend. Uh, just catching up and see how the opening conference went. Ellie, what'd you think? Uh, I thought it was really good, a lot of good information. Um, kind of that Hearst is going to stay the course, um, same number of audits next year. They're still doing manufacturer audits um, and looking to uh, support us through a lot of the litigation that's coming on. Um, not a lot that they could say about the litigation that's going on, but definitely I feel like they're in our corner for all that. Yeah, sounds like a good update. What else are you looking forward to doing while you're here? Well, I am newer to Spend Men, so I'm excited to meet a lot of clients in person, talk to people, and uh, get to know everyone here. Great. Have a great week. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Rob reporting from 340B Coalition. I'm with William Mayhood, one of our fantastic 340B auditors. And I thought I'd ask him this intriguing question um, as we sat through the prescription drug um, pricing legislation going through right now. Um, one of the covered entities I was sitting next to, uh, one of the 340B staff there, had asked a question about does this, does this, would this pertain to inpatient administered drugs? And I wanted to get William's thought process on that. Sure. So I think that it's a little too early to tell right away. But it would be complicated to apply it to inpatient because it's intended as an OPPS rule or payments. It would apply best in the OPPS setting. And with the inpatient or IPPS, it, based upon payment methodology, it would be too difficult to, I think, split or otherwise accumulate and then track for it on that end. I agree. I agree. I think that'd be very problematic. Um, 
you know, we're still looking at possibly four accounts if they go that model, which is a little crazy. If you think about it, we're going to have the 340B account, a GPO account. So if you're subject to the GPO prohibition, you have a WAC account and maybe a Medicare account. Is that is that your thoughts as well? Yes. And so then it's sort of hard to have this other, in air quotation, you know, type account to then keep track of as well. And I also think that just it becomes burdensome for both parties to have that. So my thought would be it would be OPPS only, especially with data. Yep, I agree. I agree. So perfect. Well, I'm sure there's going to be more to come on this. And, and you know what? Maybe we even have a separate podcast to talk about this once we once they pass the bill and we get a more uh, formal. We, we can actually read it. That would be helpful. So yep. thank you. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you later. Hey, everyone. I'm here with my friend Sammy at 340B Coalition. Hey, Sammy. How's it going? Hi. Good. Thank you for having me. Tell everybody, what covered entity are you here representing and where are you from? I'm from Staten Island, New York, and I'm representing the uh, SUNY Downstate Medical Center, the State University of New York Medical Center. Uh, we're proudly serving uh, downtown Brooklyn uh, population, and we're the only academic medical center over there. Uh, we have higher than average disproportionate share of Medicaid and Medicare patients, and we're serving proudly uh, a lot of other uh, indigent and uh, needy population, and that's why we're utilizing the 340B program to make sure uh, that uh, all these people getting the, ser- the healthcare service that they deserve. Fantastic. Sammy and I go way back. We've worked together a number of times over the years, uh, incredible subject matter expert in the 340B world. So in terms of your time here at the coalition, any standout sessions that you've uh, been to, anything that you've learned around hot topics in the 340B space? Um, actually, one of the highlights was the uh, keynote spe- uh, speech by uh, Dr. Igwem, or Lieutenant Igwem, yesterday, uh, especially when he mentioned that he served as a community pharmacist himself and that he was uh, kind of saddened when, uh, when he got to meet patients who cannot uh, have uh, appropriate or access to uh, affordable medications. Uh, I think I'm, I'm very optimistic with that young, uh, intelligent gentleman because he has that determination for public service and, and he has a lot of energy and I do wish him uh, good luck. Yeah, I think OPA is in good hands with his leadership now. Um, what else are you looking forward to this week as we are at the midpoint of the coalition conference? Any other things you're hoping to try to uh, identify or learn about? Um, yeah, I, I actually had a lot of notes, and I just need to gather them all in one, uh, uh, like, mini booklet, and I use that as a 340B uh, uh, material reference, and I report that to my director as well. Great. All right. And we're also kind of rounding out the summer season here. Any fun summer plans for the end of the, the season? Um, yeah, I got some recommendation from my kids for uh, some theme park around here, but not, not, not too close. It's in New Jersey. It's called... Uh, Diggerland, so they will have fun uh, riding those uh, many sized cranes and many bulldozers as well as water parks. So that's, uh, that's a promise I give to them after the conference. We'll probably go there. All right, Sam, yeah. you got to send me a picture of you going down a water slide. All right, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again. You're very welcome. Thank you. Hey, everyone, this is Rob Nahopi coming from the 340B Coalition. I'm here with Sharon Boggs. Sharon, you mind introducing yourself and your organization? Yes, my name is Sharon Boggs, as you just mentioned, and I am a 340B Compliance Manager with Signature Healthcare, Brockton Hospital in Brockton, Massachusetts. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're at the coalition. Uh, any, anything, uh, what's been your highlight so far for the coalition? So far, the highlight for me is, is coming back out, kind of integrating with all of the people who are part of this great program, the 340B program. And I think just socializing and getting all the new information that we need to run our programs efficiently and effectively. Excellent, excellent. Anything, anything um, with your program that you'd like to share? Anything uh, fantastic that you guys are doing for patients? Well, right now we are currently working on our 340B um, program itinerary on what we're doing, but we service meds to beds. Um, we also are utilizing it, working with the social workers at the hospital to make sure we provide any medication that any patients need. And we are now currently looking to expand that um, with uh, pharmacist prescriptions. So um, more to come on that, as, as, as some of my colleagues would say. <laughs> well, fantastic, Cheryl. Thank you for stopping by at our booth and saying hello, and we love working with you. So hopefully we'll see you tonight at our, at, at our party.
Thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, we're back with Sharon. She had mentioned Meds to Beds, and we were talking here, and, and Chelsea Reeve, our uh, operations director had a good idea to kind of ask more about uh, Meds to Beds. Sharon, do you mind sharing more about what you're doing your Meds to Beds program? Yeah, absolutely. So Meds to Beds is actually essentially a, a program where we provide medication for our patients who are indigent care, and it's a bedside service. So the meds are prepared by uh, a pharmacist, and then the meds are delivered to the patient at bedside to make sure that we have medication adherence for all patients, and they don't leave the hospital without medication. So it is a great program that um, we figured we'd follow up on so you know what that is. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. And I agree, right? So we, we learn all the time. Patients go home. They don't um, fill the medications that they're prescribed, and they end up back in the hospital. So love you guys are doing that. Thank you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> have a good one. Okay. See you tonight. Hey everyone, I'm here with Jasmine from our team at Spendman Pharmacy. How's it going, Jasmine? Hey Greg, it's going good so far. How's the conference been so far? Oh, it's been wonderful. Yeah. What's been the, I guess, the, the, the most exciting thing about being back at a conference in person? I think seeing all of our clients that we haven't seen in the last years has been great. We've also got a few new employees that I got to meet, so that's been a lot of fun. We've worked together remotely this whole time being at Spendman and finally got a chance to meet together for the first time in person, which I think is pretty exciting. So how about clients? Any clients that you've gotten a chance to meet this week? Yeah, we have a, a client from Fairbanks that flew all the way out here, so shout out to Amanda. Um, definitely have a few other FQHCs that I've met, um, some prospective clients, but also lots of returning clients. It's been fun. Yeah, well, so Fairbanks, Alaska, she probably gets the award for most miles traveled to the coalition. How about standout sessions? Have you been to any sessions over the last couple of days that have been um, helpful? Yeah, so I just got back from actually one of our one of my colleagues' uh, sessions for contract pharmacy operations. That one was a really good one. Good. Anything left planned for you the rest of the summer for fun? Well, next week I'll be in Spain, and I will not be answering emails, <laughs> and it'll be a good time off in the, at the beach. All right, thanks. Have a great rest <laughs> of the week. Hey, everyone. Rob again from the 340B Coalition Conference. I'm with Amanda Plowman from Fairbanks, Alaska, at Fairbanks Memorial Hospital. I believe um, it's already been noted by Jasmine that she probably flew the farthest of anybody to get here. So just want to say hi. And how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Fantastic. So uh, out of curiosity, what recent development in the 340B space is grabbing your attention most these days? Right now, it would be the Supreme Court ruling for the 2018-2019 Medicare Part B drug cuts and yep. how we should be getting a refund of some kind and what's going to happen with it. Yeah, that I mean, that was exciting that the Supreme Court um, sort of overturned their payment reduction. Absolutely, though, we're still waiting to hear. Haven't seen a, I, I'm, I don't know about you, I've been going to a lot of the sessions. Haven't seen them really address how that's going to happen yet. What are your thoughts uh, on how that's going to play out? Yeah, I'm very curious to find out how it's going to play out. Um, I really am unsure. I'm trying to calculate my numbers now and also interested to find out what's going to happen to 2020, 2021, and 2022 because that could play a big, a big part on whether or not we have further litigation with them to go. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I agree. And, and hopefully we get to learn a little bit more. But hey, one good news. We know that starting January 1st, 2023, no payment reduction. So we know at least you'll see some savings then. Yes. And I've already calculated that and gave that to my finance team on purpose. So that way I could at least end the day on a good note with them. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. I'm glad you can make it out here to D.C. with your four hour time change. We were just talking just now. She's not sure if she's going to make her 645 a.m. Uh, um, thing tomorrow morning because that would be 245 back in Fairbanks. Yes, and uh, that's a little early. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for stopping by and, um, and, and recording a little bit on our podcast. Yeah, thank we'll, you. we'll see you later tonight. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Jake Thompson, who just attended the corporate breakfast this morning. We're uh, Tuesday morning uh, at the 340 Coalition. Jake, uh, any highlights or something you want to share from the corporate breakfast? Yeah, certainly we're talking about uh, the contract pharmacy dilemma and, and what's the road to fix and really talk about three different pathways, uh, rulemaking authority, legislative changes, um, and then the court's decision. 
And what was interesting to learn about rulemaking authority is that really is not taking much stronghold um, on the Hill because for her to get rulemaking authority would have to open the statute. And then if you open the statute, even the 340B champions um, suggest that we'll have to give concessions. And a lot of the Congress folks are not interested in doing that because it'd be really hard to give them a narrow scope. So rulemaking authority really appears to be out, not, not realistic um, anytime soon. Legislative fixes obviously is really hard um, through the end of the year. There's a slight chance that maybe something could get in and we have to be prepared for in 2023. Um, but again, even the champions will suggest that if we want to get this in legislation, there'll have to be some concessions. And that's really hard to um, you know, predict what can happen. So the courts is where it's really at. So it's going to be a journey through the end of the year and then uh, appeals. And, and we'll see if it takes it to the Supreme Court later on. Awesome. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate you attending that 645 breakfast session because, you know, yours truly did not. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.